Our scripture passage this evening comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 14. We will read verses 24 through 46. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now, when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, So he put out the tip of the staff that was on his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood." Then they, saw, then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherous, treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. And it was, it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. And the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die 
who has worked this great salvation for Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray. Our Father, would you feed us tonight? Would you show us the limits of human rulers? And would you show us our need for your Son, who cares for all of our greatest needs? Give us perspective and keep us humble by means of your Scripture, sending your Spirit to make it effectual. We ask for your help tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Politics is something I, I feel like I've successfully steered away from in the pulpit since I got here. Occasionally it comes up as an application, but uh, by and large, as your pastor, I feel I have a very heavy responsibility to set our eyes as a church higher than just human games of thrones and struggles for power. Um, in many ways, I see it as, as my job to lead you away from the temptation to put your hope in government, not to encourage sort of a delusion that rulers and principalities and powers are going to be some sort of savior for us. Karl Marx had a famous saying, it was that religion is the opium of the masses. And when Karl Marx was saying this, he was basically saying that religion was something to make us escape from reality and give us sort of a warm feeling and sort of keep people docile and tolerable. However, I wonder if he anticipated a day when politics would maybe even take the place of religion in the life of a populace. To be honest, he probably wanted it. I actually think we're there. I actually think we're there now, and I actually think it will only get worse. Think about this. Is it a coincidence that our nation, as it becomes more secular, has also, at the same time in secularization has increased, polarization has increased uh, between the parties. There's more bitterness between Republican and Democrat, certainly within my lifetime. Not that it's been a long lifetime, but certainly that I'm used to seeing. Um, you see, I'm largely convinced politics is generally an escape. It's generally a sideshow for Americans. It's something to keep us busy 24-7 on constantly blaring television screens and to generate income for television stations. And what happens in the meantime is we are able to forget for a while that we have souls, that we matter as people, and that we will one day die and stand before God. The more that Americans lose their interest in God, the more their interest in the government, the more their belief in the government increases and goes up. And so in other words, it used to be religion was the opium of the masses. That has changed. Today, politics has become the opium of the masses. It has become a daily numbing distraction that gives people a pendulum swinging between hope and despair, depending on who is in power. And so if their lives are bad, Americans will increasingly blame the government. And if their lives are good, Americans will credit that to the government 
And over time, human rulers can become so important to people that eventually people begin to put most of their hope and most of their expectation on human rulers. This year is going to be enormously important for America. There is obviously a federal election happening later this year, and all of you probably have opinions about that election and will no doubt be inundated with ads, with uh, bombardment and posts on social media, and with near-constant opinions by people on television about what's going to be happening for the rest of this year. My question is this. What if God's word gave us the kind of perspective on human rulers that would protect us from attaching too much importance to all of this? Would you want to hear it? Would you be willing to hear it? What if God were to say something to us to minister to our souls Beyond the partisan bickering. I think what the Bible does is twofold on this point. It helps us to remember that the city where we live, the city of man, that it really matters, right? The place where we live does matter. In other words, my argument is not that politics is inconsequential and it doesn't matter and we shouldn't care about it. But on the other hand, the Bible also helps us to remember that God has given us everything we ultimately, really, and truly need in himself And in his son, which means that our hope, we can care about this place where we live without putting our ultimate hope in it or in its rulers. So there's a biblical balance that the Bible gives to us. And so what tonight's passage does is it contrasts these human rulers and their decrees with God and his decrees. And so what I want to do is just look at three ways that human decrees differ and are inferior to God's decrees. Three ways that human rulers simply are not and cannot be what we really need in life. And so whether you're a Republican, whether you're, you're a, a Democrat, one thing is for sure. Many Americans are bound to be disappointed when November rolls around. Uh, half of America, literally half of America, is going to be upset whatever happens When November rolls around. And so what God has to say to us tonight has to transcend those parties. It has to transcend those results. There is a comfort here if your party loses. And there is something to slow your enthusiasm if your party wins. And and then there's something to smirk at, I guess, if you're a third party voter. I don't know. (laughs) But here's the first contrast we see tonight. Human decrees can be foolish while God's commands are always wise. Human commands can be foolish, while God's commands are always wise. See, the passage begins immediately with Saul making a foolish command for his army. He makes a foolish command. Um, They're going to fast, right? They're going to fast. No food for anybody. He says, "'Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I'm avenged on my enemies.'" And there are a couple of concerns that may have given rise to this oath, I think on the one hand, Saul may have just been keeping the soldiers from looting the Philistine camp because he knows that if they stop at the Philistine camp, it's going to slow them down and they're not going to be able to give chase. So there's a strategic thought here, which is let's keep going. If we keep going, we will eventually catch up to the Philistines. And so by banning them from eating food, he may have actually seen himself as keeping them from being distracted. Now, of course, every decision like that has some sort of blowback. 
Matthew Henry puts it this way. He says, if it gained time, it lost strength in the pursuit. Just think about what he's doing. He's actually forbidding them from even tasting anything. And Matthew Henry says, that's barbarous. You can't treat soldiers this way. Uh, after a long day of battle, there are, are very few things soldiers need more than rest and food. Um, and this is just, there's just no worldly wisdom in this at all. Um, hope Robert doesn't me, me, mind me mentioning his, uh, his memoirs. Uh, but I was reading his account of his time in Vietnam and, and as a reader, I was just exhausted. <laughs> I was just exhausted as I was reading along with him because as I was reading, I was putting myself in the shoes of, of Robert as he was marching through the jungle. He had a commander who marched the men through the jungle. And at times they went days without food. They were completely miserable. Their clothing was in tatters um, and they were completely exhausted and demoralized. And, and just from reading Robert's account, and he could tell you better than me, it seems that the foolish and proud, maybe even spiteful uh, decisions of his commander ended up with them stumbling through the jungles of Laos as miserable and hungry as a person could be. At one point, I think I remember Robert saying as he marched that he realized this was the hardest thing he would ever do. Now, I don't know. It's been a few years since that happened. Maybe Robert would tell you he can think of something harder, but I'm not sure he could. Uh, He said some of the men were even hallucinating because they were pushed so hard. So imagine this. You're a soldier. You're you're doing a painful and difficult march. And then your commander, for seemingly no reason you could possibly imagine, says you can't eat anything. You've got food at hand, but you can't eat any of it. I think any soldier would tell you that is a foolish leader. And one thing that fasting does is it sends your body into a state where your metabolism drops over time. And that doesn't just mean that you burn calories more slowly, but it also means that you have less energy to begin with. And so we actually see that the the honey would have helped them because, because when Jonathan, unaware of his father's oath, eats the honey, you notice what the text says happens to Jonathan. It says that his eyes became bright. He was, he was ready to fight after eating the honey and the rest of the soldiers would have been ready to fight as well. Now, Saul may have had another motivation as well in, in making this oath. See, after Samuel rejected him at Gilgal, this happened in chapter 13, Saul seems to have become more religious. He almost seems to have this sort of self-caused uh, revival. He's trying to make a revival happen in his own life. At least you might think of it as a revival. Um, think of the examples. Think of the things that Saul has started doing since he got rejected. He, he gets Ichabod's son to come be his priest. How great. He's going to be a good priest for me, right? Um, he takes it upon himself to make the sacrifice. He, he interrupts the priest last week when God refused to answer. See, he, it's like he's doubling down on being more religious. And he's doing it as a way of getting God back on his side. He's trying to move the situation his way. Now, now it may actually be that Saul thinks that making his whole army fast will earn him divine favor. I think this is very reasonable as one of the possible reasons why he wants the people to fast. Because see, this fits the narrative, right? At every point, he's doing what he thinks a religious person would do. It's like he's asking himself, what would a religious person do in this situation? He's asking what a religious person would do But at no point is he really asking himself, what would God call me to do? He's got this 
immediate spiritual intuition that he sort of goes by. But then every time that Saul makes a decision, it it only doubles down on the foolishness. It ends up being worse for the army, worse for his own soul, worse for Israel in every way. And of course, the most basic and simple application of that is living by your own wisdom and not living by God's wisdom will never result in flourishing and joy. Living by your wisdom and not by God's wisdom will not result in flourishing and joy. Of course, the wisdom of God is such a profound contrast to that of of a human ruler like Saul, right? Saul's decision is foolish. Saul's decision actually harms the people. Um, Jonathan actually gets to the point where he says, my father has troubled this land. He's speaking against his own father, the commander of the army. When the wisdom of God rules a people, it's a blessing. What does God say in Proverbs? He says, with a ruler of understanding and knowledge, a land's stability will long continue. Human rulers are unavoidable. Human rulers are a necessity. Anarchy is not good. You are not a blessed people if you have no ruler. So that is not what God wants for us. Rulers are put in place by God, Romans tells us. But they are still human beings and they are still weak And they are certainly sinners, and we may need them, but we ought to have a healthy suspicion that they can ever give us what we truly need. And so the first point tonight, human human decrees can be foolish. Human decrees can be foolish. Second tonight, we see that human decrees can be nullified. And, you know, the other flip side of that is God's commands always stand. Um, So there's this unimpressive battle, Saul discovers that his son has transgressed his rule that he made up, that the soldiers aren't allowed to eat anything. And so, um, you know, we're just sort of moving past the, the way that God does this and the way that Saul discerns this. In verse 44, Saul says, you shall surely die, Jonathan. He's doubling down on this. He's, he's sticking with his command. And he makes this pronouncement. He's so sure about it. He even attaches the word surely to it. He says, you're surely going to die. I know you're going to die. But here's what's so interesting, and you see this in the narrative, the people stand up for Jonathan. Um, They actually tell Saul, actually, no, he won't die. He's the one God used to save us. You can't kill the one that God just used last week to save us. Well, it wasn't last week for them. It's last week for us. And then the passage says, so the people, this is, listen to the phrasing. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. This is, this is really remarkable. It's, it's not what we think of as a very well-functioning monarchy, is it? <laughs> when the people can just stand up and say, uh, no, you're not going to do that. It almost looks like a democracy at this point. Not a representative republic, but like a democracy. Like all the people just say, hey, this is what we want. It's a monarchy, but the, the seams of human government are starting to show here, don't they? Um, even a king can't get what he wants if he's the only person in the entire kingdom who, who wants it. So this is not a, not a strong moment for Saul. He has now overreached as the king. He goes against his own men. And this is how Matthew Henry evaluates Saul at this moment. He says, those most indulgent to their own sins are most severe upon others. Those who, are, who most disregard God's authority 
are most impatient when their own commands are slighted, such as cast abroad curses, endanger themselves and their families. What do we observe in the whole of Saul's behavior in this occasion but an impetuous, proud, malignant, impious disposition? And do we not in every instance perceive that man left to himself betrays the depravity of his nature and is enslaved to the basest tempers? Matthew Henry's not kind to Saul here. (laughs) The command that Jonathan should die is absolutely a self-indulgent command. He's the sort of ruler that is not willing to say, you know what, I messed up. We need that in rulers. We need rulers who, when they make mistakes, are willing to admit it. He may have been a little too convinced of the righteousness of his own plan, and any ruler who isn't willing to question himself is bound to rely on his own wisdom rather than God's wisdom. All rulers, whether they be political rulers or even church leaders, need to be willing to listen to the input of others and be willing to be corrected. Even the decree of a king can be nullified and overturned, as we see here tonight. By the way, this isn't just true of of political government. It's true of all human documents and institutions, right? Even in America... We have a very high regard for the Constitution. At least some people have a high regard for the Constitution. But even the Constitution can be amended. And this is, this is true even in our own church government. Our church Constitution consists of the Westminster Confession, the Catechisms, and the Book of Church Order. But sometimes what we ask uh, in Presbytery, we'll give Presbytery exams, and we will ask somebody who's up for a license or for ordination... Well, why isn't the Bible a part of the Constitution of our church? And the answer is the Constitution of the church can be changed, but the Bible cannot be changed. We can't change, we can't amend the Bible. And so we see what God shows us here isn't a knock on actual literal government, but really any human institution that we are tempted to put our ultimate hope in. Our enthusiasm for any limited human project has got to be tempered. It has to be smoothed over by realism and humility. And our God is so different from this. The word of God can't be amended. The word of God can't be canceled out. The the word of God can't be changed. What does Isaiah 40 say? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God's word stands. God's word is always true. God's word is always sure. God's word can never be nullified. Are you building your life around those things that cannot be changed, cannot be stolen, cannot be amended, cannot be twisted, cannot be taken back? If you haven't made God your hope, then every day of your life is lived on shaky ground that is always shifting, it's always in danger. And so the encouragement here of the text tonight is let's find our shelter and our hope in God because he does not change, his commands do not change, and he is always right. Human institutions aren't like that. Human institutions flux and change, wax and wane. 
And third, tonight we see that human decrees cannot bring us to God. This is very important. Don't miss this. Because of Saul's command, the men are starving by the time they strike down the Philistines. And so the soldiers are so hungry, they start killing animals. They start eating them on the spot. Now, this is a sin that actually gets dealt with in Genesis chapter 9. It's something that's forbidden even outside the Mosaic law. And so Saul tries to avoid this. He ends up counteracting it by building an altar to the Lord. And then two verses later, Saul inquires of God what they should do, and he is met with divine silence. Think about this. Saul, as the king, can do a lot of things. He can command the people to fast, even if it's foolish. He can try to kill his own son, even if all the people oppose it. He he can build an altar, but he cannot make God speak. As hard as he may try, He cannot make God commune with him. See, there are limits even to kings. Kings can do so much, but as powerful as kings and rulers are, they are not sovereign over the God of the universe. You see, this altar, this altar is not enough. There is no human decree that can bring us to God. Do you see this? He can can act out. He can become outwardly religious. He can be as religious as you can imagine a ruler being. He can build altars. He can hire priests to hang out with him. He can perform sacrifices. He can get religious, but he can't bring God near. God is silent to him. This is a textbook definition of a religious person. If I do the right thing, God will reward me. And yet there's nothing Saul can do. The one thing Saul is supposed to do is the one thing he does not try. In fact, it's something he never tries again. Sorrow for sin and a dependence on the Savior that will cause God to look upon him with kindness or favor. There is no act. There is no deed. There's nothing he can perform. There's nothing he can do. There is no sovereign kingly decree that he can make. This is... The true and dramatic contrast tonight, please don't miss it. The the decree of a ruler can do lots of things that we may really like, all right? Maybe stuff that we as Christians really yearn to see in the public square, right? Maybe we want to see, now children are allowed to pray in school, but maybe we say, well, we want lots of organized prayer, teachers leading classes in prayer, Bible studies being led by by faculty members. Uh, We want to see public displays of religiosity in the public square again. Let's say we get all of that. Let's say we get a president that does all of those things. Let's say Congress passes decrees left and right, making us a super religious society. They can make the most pious religious displays you could possibly imagine, and it won't do anything to bring each and every person closer to God. Why is that? Because human decrees can build altars, but they cannot give us an encounter with God. Because God doesn't respond to altars. He doesn't respond to external religious displays. He responds to the bowed knee and the humble heart and the person that relies on Christ alone. The point here tonight isn't that government is bad. The point is not that we shouldn't care what our rulers do or say. The point here is that our hope 
isn't in such leaders or in their decrees because they, can, they still can't make the thing that our hearts need most happen. We could live in a super religious land where people are mandated to come to church even, and still all we would do is whitewash tombs and clean the outside of cups. Why? Because there are some things that kings and rulers cannot do. They can pass laws. They can protect our freedoms. Righteous rulers are a blessing to a land. There is no doubt. They can do a great deal. But they cannot change the heart. That is something that still and always will belong to God alone. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to have you as our God and our King, the one who loves us and never gives up on us. We remember tonight that we may be guilty of putting our hope in the wrong places, even in the wrong people. We pray for the good of the city that you've sent us to, the city of man that we live in. And we pray for it, Lord. We pray for its blessing. We pray for its flourishing, Lord. But we also remember that the only one who can give us our unchanging hope is you and you alone. Help us to believe it, to see it, and to live by it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.